Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now let's talk a little bit about Apollo. Leon Black is the famed billionaire um, who is one of the co-founders of Apollo, but he was tangled up in the drama around disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein and is stepping down as chief executive of his company a few months ahead of schedule. Shnali Basak covers Wall Street for us for Bloomberg News. Shnali, um, does this mean that Apollo can make an earlier sort of uh, restart at uh, its, I, I guess, a PR campaign to get away from Epstein? Listen, I think that's certainly the hope. If you look at Apollo's shares on the year, they're pretty flat, whereas Blackstone is up more than 12%. So they're at a pretty big differential when you compare them to their largest competitor. They have some big things on the horizon for themselves. They agreed to an $11 billion deal to merge with the insurance company that they founded. So there is a hope that they could start moving past the scandal and into a growth phase uh, and yeah, that's, that is the main hope. It is a big surprise, right? Because Leon Black initially said he would step back as CEO, but stay chairman. And now he's stepping back as chairman and CEO. And um, he will be involved in the sense that he will remain the firm's largest shareholder. Shanali, has anything changed? Has any news come up to maybe uh, precipitate this move here? I know that the news is generally as it relates to his relationship with Epstein been very, very unsettling for the firm. But has anything new come out? Well, yeah, the fact that he's stepping back completely like this begs the question if investors were concerned that he remained affiliated with the firm at all. So the thing is, he said to the board that really this has taken a toll on him. A lot of this public spotlight in light of his own relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Remember, Apollo did not have a relationship, just Leon Black did. And he would said that it really took a toll on his health. And that's why he's stepping back. So he did paint this as a very personal decision when when he announced this just this morning. Janelle, you cover private equity for us and talk to the biggest movers and shakers in the industry and have for years. Uh, Leon Black paid Jeffrey Epstein one hundred and fifty eight million dollars for financial advice. Does that seem to you, you know, in the realm of billionaires, like something that's at all normal to do? Listen, it's a lot of money and it really finance such a large amount of Jeffrey Epstein's own wealth that it did raise a ton of eyebrows. On top of that, it was $158 million largely for tax advice. Leon Black is a financial genius, right? So that amount of money for tax advice seemed like a lot of money to spend for any type of consultancy, let alone tax advice. What's the impact been on the firm? Has there been any impact on a firm from um, this fallout uh, with Mr. Epstein? Listen, yes, absolutely. Investors, large pension funds were threatening to not really continue to invest in some of Apollo's largest funds, right? And which is why a lot of this decision had happened in the first place. Mark Rowan was really, who's becoming the CEO of this firm, was behind some of the most profitable bets at Apollo. So it was a really natural choice to take over for the firm. He was also a co-founder, so a lot of consistency 
But yes, the, the, the Epstein scandal really did weigh on Apollo. It seemed to very much weigh on Leon Black himself. And these people are just looking forward to moving on and moving to the next phase of this firm. Again, they have a lot of catch up to do when you compare them with Blackstone. But this is certainly a big move for a firm that has really become a giant of finance. Yep. Hey, Shanali, thanks so much for joining us. Just a fascinating story here. Shanali Basak, she is Bloomberg's Wall Street reporter. We always enjoy getting the latest. Well, we all know of the many, many, many industries uh, that have been disrupted by COVID. I I guess we saw first and foremost, you know, a year ago, uh, right about now, leisure and uh, lodging and just, uh, you know, how the consumer goes about his or her daily life. Well, let's let's think about the insurance industry and what changes it has had to implement as it deals with COVID. There's nobody better to chat about that than Wayne Peacock. He's the president and CEO of USAA based in beautiful San Antonio, Texas. I spent many, many uh, days in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Some great folks down there. Wayne, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, we think about the pandemic disrupting a lot of industries, uh, many profoundly. Give us a sense of how it impacted your business over the past 12 months. Well, again, thanks for having me on this morning and uh, great to be reaching out from San Antonio, a little more beautiful this week than a couple of weeks ago with the deep freeze. So we are we're thawing out uh, here today. You know, for us, first and foremost, uh, was the need to get our employees uh, out of the office and working remotely um, and to be able to do that without interrupting service. I think we did that pretty well uh, back in you know March of last year. But as we think back to last year, two big themes, I think, that are important, a historic catastrophe year um, and the need to be able to serve uh, members uh, in need um, without actually being able to get out and virtual or and physically inspect their, uh, their homes. So the work we've been doing over the years to build digital capabilities um, paid huge dividends as we adjusted our model to do virtual adjusting um, for catastrophes. And in the auto insurance business, um, as we all went home um, and businesses shut down, um, folks stopped driving. So a very significant change in the frequency of miles driven um, and accidents that come as a result of that. So two different stories for us um, in the insurance business last year. And you, Wayne, have followed the Marine Corps philosophy for making decisions, the 70% solution. Tell us what that is. Well, um, I'll tell you, first of all, a global pandemic was not on my priority list when I became the CEO on February 1st of last year. I had about 19 days of grace before the world began to you know, kind of unravel, and it became really clear that we needed to move with speed um, to make decisions as simple as and as complex as getting employees home, um, and then just uh, you know a range of decisions as we adapted and changed the business. So we took on this philosophy of, you know, we're not going to have perfect information. We won't have everything that we need. Um, but we do need to make a good risk-managed decision, and we need to make it today. Um, 70% seems like a good uh, number to start with. And then recognize in this changing environment that uh, conditions will change, and we can re-choose tomorrow if necessary, but better to choose today um, than not choose. And I think that served us um, really well through the height of the pandemic, and thankfully is continuing to serve us today as we kind of taught ourselves that um, this big organization can move at a much faster pace than maybe we thought possible uh, before the pandemic arrived on our doorstep. So, Wayne, USAA serves the needs, the insurance needs of uh, U.S. military members and, and, and veterans. Talk to us about 
any special insurance needs they may need here around COVID um, that you've had to deal with? Well, uh, like all of us, uh, you know, the DOD shut down as well. So we had military folks who were you know, planning to move um, duty stations. Um, those were halted. In many cases, we'd started to help them with their plans for their new location while they were stuck in their old location. So just working through some of those challenges as their kind of uh, move was suspended is an example. Um, I think from an insurance standpoint, uh, really kind of being there when they need us most. But what we saw a lot, especially with enlisted folks is, um, you know, that enlisted soldier or sailor or airman is still getting their paycheck, but their spouse most likely has been disaffected uh, much more so than the average person in the pandemic. So a lot of underemployment or no employment in that kind of second income for a group of folks who are really kind of working paycheck to paycheck uh, every single month. So we had about a million of our members that we helped either by, you know, uh, stringing out their payments on a longer pace or foregoing some of the payments that they owed us, uh, both in terms of banking um, and in our insurance portfolio. And it's just really helpful to that group uh, to ease the pain um, as they you know, work through some of the challenges like the rest of us did last year. And you, you provided more than $47 million to support COVID-19 uh, relief for, for families of the military, also $50 million over three years. You have a program to support racial equity initiatives, and you returned more than a billion dollars in dividends to members during the pandemic. What, how does that compare in terms of returning dividends? Well, it's something we really have. We, we return dividends every year. It's part of the great uh, part of USAA's association. Uh, when we have uh, funds left over at the end, we return them back to members. But these were special dividends that we did throughout the year in recognition of our auto insurance policyholders you know, who are not driving um, as much. We did a series of three of those during the year, totaling, as you said, about a billion dollars. And then what we realized, you know, we can help, you know, members who are in need, but we really needed to take an additional step. So we put almost $50 million into COVID relief, whether it was food and security issues in markets where, you know, we work and live, or very specifically about $30 million um, that we invested with military aid societies so that they could give low interest loans or or grants um, to soldiers, sailors, airmen, and National Guardsmen who you know may be having a difficult uh, time through that period. And then with the social unrest um, that we all experienced last year, we, we recognize we need to do more on our part as well. And so we've committed you know $50 million, uh, the first in our history, um, to try to attack and address some of the challenges with systemic racism and the inequalities that are kind of built into the fabric of our society. So really yep. um, interested in making a difference on that front as well. All right, Wayne Peacock diving into the deep end, taking over as president and CEO of USAA mere really days before the pandemic hit the shores of the United States of America. Thanks so much for joining us, Wayne. Let's get over to somebody who is clearly an expert in how these markets work. Pete Anderson joins us. Uh, he is the founder of Anderson Capital Management, and he's located in Boston. And he beat the S&P last year by 40.7%. Peter, how, well, first of all, tell us how you did that and tell us if your strategy has changed in 21. I think we're doing a great job this year of distracting ourselves from what really matters. More about that later. But uh, listen, I did this by focusing on 15 stocks, 15 stocks only, long holding period, just common sense about what I think is going to go up in value 
regardless of whether or not we had a lockdown or we're swinging from the vines with an economic recovery, uh, I pick stocks based on fundamental outlooks and uh, the demand that I foresee coming uh, for those industries. All right, Peter, you're a longtime value investor, and that's certainly uh, had its time in the sun here. Uh, really since September, I would suggest. Give us your sense for kind of the legs you think this trade has going forward. Well, you know, um, I am both a value and a growth investor. I wanted to just clarify that. And um, I actually kind of shun those labels because, <laughs> as I said, I just try to pick stocks that go up. And as you know, you know, all kinds of stocks go up. So what's happening now, though, is I think we've made the world too complex for our own understanding. You know, this relationship, we're seeing it this morning, right, when the market opened, this inverse relationship with the treasuries, when their yield goes up, the market goes down. Whoever thought of that, and why is that now the new narrative? I mean, I'm just ignoring those uh, that dynamic, and, you know, it's painful sometimes because, let me put it to you this way, if I sold the stock every time uh, rates went up, I wouldn't end up owning anything. So you've got to have a longer-term perspective, and I also think that rates are too low. I'm probably the only person out there that's going to say this publicly, but we're, we're, on the, um, we're going to embark on one of the greatest economic recoveries of all time, right? I think we all can agree upon that. And with a 10-year, you know, hit, hitting perhaps a 2% yield, I think that's absolutely fine with me. In fact, you know, it hasn't been long where we've seen a 3% yield. People need to think about, in perspective, a great growth scenario, and you do have to have yields going up. It's just part of the calculus of the economics. I mean, the concern, of course, is that we get with that great growth scenario, great inflation, yep. Um, and that forces the Fed's hand. Are you not worried as has Chairman Powell um, uh, calmed you in terms of worrying about rate rises? Well, you know, you asked how I got to the 40 plus percent last year and a lot of the stuff, um, it, with all due respect to the chairman and other analysts, a lot of it is somewhat noise, and I think you have to factor it into a more complex picture. You know, I, I do say some things are simple, but some things are complex. And, and in this case, you know, the Fed is trying its best to calm uh, what I would say is a very emotional market. You know, since the beginning of 2021, I, I think everything changed. If we look back to January and think of the narratives, you know, space travel, uh, SPACs, all these kinds of really newly focused um, areas, I think we have to put that in perspective, as you do with the Fed and their narrative on rates. I do think uh, the Fed is probably saying that they don't want to have this um, recovery dampened at all, so it's very, very sensitive. But when you just strip all this away, what is driving this? It's this pent-up huge recovery that we're going to have. We're right on the brink of this, and I think it would be shameful for people to think that if rates are going up, um, it's a bad time to invest in growth stocks. All right. So what are some of the sectors that you think are, or that, you know, you're putting some money to work in right now? Well, you know, I've uh, always liked and I continue to like, you know, growth stocks. So in um, cybersecurity, that is never going to go away, right? So I think last time we mentioned Palo Alto and CyberArk, and those are two companies that are dear to my heart. And uh, I think regardless of what will happen, rising rates, 
decreasing rates, you know, slowing development, whatever people want to throw in terms of the narrative of the day, these stocks are going to be survivors. The most recent stock I added, though, and I did mention SPACs, you know, I'm negative on most SPACs that are startup SPACs in the sense that they buy companies that don't have any operating history, but there are plenty of companies out there that a SPAC will buy uh, that does have operating history. And a company that I'm very excited about is called Danimer Scientific. They make biodegradable plastic, and I'm not um, an ESG investor, but when I do see a company that has a uh, tremendously attractive product, such as plastic that will biodegrade in your backyard, I do get excited about that because the addressable market is so large. So that is the most recent stock that I've added. And other than that, I still own NVIDIA. Uh, cybersecurity, I mentioned, yep. and data storage. The basic, you know, the basic building blocks of a strong economy. Hey, Peter, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts here. Peter Anderson, founder of Anderson Capital Management based in Boston. Uh, mm. Optimistic outlook on the market there, uh, Matt. And he's, uh, he kind of has a concentrated portfolio of names that, again, he thinks are just good, solid names uh, and he's got some growth and some value in there. I, I hope we can get him back for a little bit longer. I mean, Peter Anderson went to Harvard and Yale, and he's an overseer of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And I ah. do hope we can get back to Boston for the pops. Uh, yes. Hopefully this 4th of July, we can see them play live again in the show. Well, a big, big trade in the railroad business. Canadian Pacific Railway agreed to buy Kansas City Southern for $25 billion, creating the only network that cuts through the U.S., Mexico, and Canada in the first year of those nations' new trade alliance. Canadian Pacific Railway CEO Keith Creel spoke with Bloomberg's Ed Hammond earlier today and had this to say about the deal. With a common vision, a common operating philosophy, creating a network that can become the true backbone, connecting three countries on the heels of the USMCA agreement that enables commerce between the three companies at a, at a time that the trade has never been more important is compelling. Uh, the benefits are compelling. That was Canadian Pacific Railway CEO Keith Creel talking about the merits of that deal. Let's break it down with Lee Klaskow. Lee is the senior transportation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering these railroad companies for decades. So, Lee, thanks so much for joining us here. This deal, when you think about it just from a geographic perspective, Boy, it really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, hey, Paul, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been a, propo- a huge proponent of, uh, of this deal for quite some time. Uh, it just makes complete sense. Um, you know, the two railroads only interchange in one spot. There's not a, a lot of, uh, you know, overlap of their network. And so, you know, we don't see it as a huge issue for, uh, you know, hurting competition amongst the railroads and maybe other modes. Uh, I think it's, it's a net-net win for uh, the railroads. Because it's really expanding their reach. Uh, and if you can keep people on your network longer, that's uh, not only good for your, your bottom line, uh, but it's also good for service for customers because there's less interchanges happening uh, and, and less opportunity for things to go wrong because that's usually when it does. First of all, I want to say how cool it is that we're talking about railroads. Yeah. Now, I saw this pop up on uh, my daybreak app on uh, on the weekend and i thought wow that is so old economy and so cool <laughs> such a big number too um are we going to see more deals like this lee i mean we've seen a number of railroad stocks jump in reaction yeah the reality is probably not for a very long time the industry is extremely consolidated 
Uh, this will bring it to six Class One rails. Those are the biggest railroads in, in North America. Um, you know, maybe longer term, and when I say longer term, 10-plus years, you could see an East uh, marry a West or uh, maybe Canadian National try to get deeper into the East. But, you know, those kind of transactions will face extreme regulatory hurdles. Um, and it will not be easy to get done. I mean, you know, this deal is not is not a slam dunk because it still needs uh, you know approval from the regulators. You know, we do think of the things I was mentioning about earlier about the fact that there's not a lot of overlap of the networks, and we don't think it's going to impact uh, a competition in a negative way. You know, we think that the deal does get done. And also, Kansas City was exempt for some of the high hurdle rates that the SDB has uh, has has kind of implemented uh, about uh, ten plus years ago. Uh, there is some, you know, uh, risk that maybe the STB might revi- revise those rules, uh, but we still think, uh, you know, the probability is that the deal does get done. Lee, talk to us about some of the business you expect to go over this uh, railroad. You know, once they get combined here, as we think about Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is is that they are creating the kind of transportation network for the future. I know that sounds silly when we're talking about old world economy uh, <laughs> railroads, but, you know, we're, we're one of our major long-term uh, thesis is that, you know, we're going to see a lot more onshoring into Mexico uh, given uh, shippers wanting to be closer to their uh, customers and the fact that they want to diversify away from, from Asia and China, you know, given that, uh, you know, trade issues are, are going to probably continue between the U.S. and China. Um, and so, you know, you have Canada with all the great natural resources. You have the U.S. that consume a lot of stuff. And then you have Mexico that's increasing their manufacturing footprint. So it just seems like it's just a great deal for future growth. Um, you know, there's one of, one of the great things about the KSU network, Kansas City Southern network, is their cross-border business. That's been a high-growth area uh, for the railroad. And, you know, we, can, we expect that to continue as more and more stuff are uh, manufactured, uh, you know, south of the border of the U.S. Lee, is there any cutting-edge aspect to the research, uh, I mean, to the, to the industry that you research? I mean, is there any kind of Hyperloop or, you know, um, super green people carrier uh, stuff going on, or is it all still old-school railroad? Yeah, outside of me working on a teleporting machine in my shed, uh, <laughs> no, there's, 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 there's really not. Uh, the reality is, is like railroads could, if you think about operate without people because, I mean, they're on a fixed track. So the, the, some of the safety issues of autonomous trucking doesn't really apply to railroads. There is a benefit to having people uh, in the locomotive, you know, in case something goes wrong or, you know, you need to deal with an exemption. Uh, but there's not, there's not really any, 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 anything out there. The rails are tinkering more with alternative fuels, and that's really a kind of a push to try to, you know, be more green and reduce their carbon footprint. Uh, you know, it's, it, a lot of the railroads, and I would say even the trucking companies and you know companies like FedEx and UPS, have really started to embrace the ESG aspect of their businesses just because it's becoming more and more important to institutional investors out there. Uh, Lee, real quick here, precision railroading, is it important to this deal? Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, so Canadian Pacific, they have more of a mature precision scheduling railroading. They've been doing it for a long time. They've pivoted towards growth. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and Kansas City is kind of in the early uh, uh, innings. 
And if you think about it, a lot of the folks at Kansas City, they've done really, at Kansas City Southern, they've done a really good job at implementing TSR. But they could learn a lot from the kind of the, the folks right. that have been doing it for a lot longer over at CP. So, you know, we believe that because of CP taking over KSU, which won't happen for probably a year in terms of an operational standpoint, mm. but they might be able to accelerate uh, that that PSR right. transformation and just Lee, drive uh, you know additional synergies. Lee, thanks so much, Lee Klaskow, their senior transport logistics and shipping analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.